Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spen, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, it feels like the kickoff of top prospect list season as we have the new Baseball America top 10 prospect list to discuss on tonight's episode. And we're going to be joined by the writer who put that together. Uh, you're familiar with his work, not just from Baseball America, where he's been doing the top 10 and top 30 for the Orioles organization over the last several years, but also from his prior work at the Baltimore Sun and now in his newsletter, Maximizing Playoff Odds a Baltimore Orioles newsletter, which is available through Substack. He is John Mioli. John, how are you doing? I'm doing well. What's going on, guys? It's great to have you back on the show. This is now your sixth appearance. <laughs> I got. I've, I feel like I've been locking down second place for a long time, but that might change soon. Who knows? It's the Melvin Moore episode. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our top guy got picked up by the Braves, so uh, he can't do Orioles podcasts anymore. So... Um, You'll be close. You'll be at the so top of the leaderboard pretty soon. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> there is a chance indeed. And I think the national baseball writer is going to be mad at us if we don't retire Steven's number, but that's another story for another day. Um, I want to start off with this, which is that the top 10 prospects lists have gradually gotten stronger over the last few years. You actually had an excellent series at your newsletter recently looking back on the ones you have done for Baseball America. And you can see the list get stronger over the last three years or so. But this one in particular feels really strong. What do you think separates it from maybe, say, the last two or three lists you've done for Baseball America? I, I think over the years it's become pretty clear, you know, especially maybe not going forward with the Orioles, but definitely in the past with the Orioles and what they've tried to do in this new era under Michael Elias and everything they're doing. Like, I think there's just something a little more impactful about, about hitting prospects. I think they're a lot, you know, I think that they are easier to project. They're easier to believe in. I think they're easier to, um, you know, kind of count on. I mean, we're talking, you know, we say this and like there was a list a couple years ago with using the LDS at the top. Like, what can you do about that? You know, Francisco. Uh, so I guess I'm just proving my point by saying this, but I feel like when you're talking about, you know, guys who, who have hit and can hit and are improving as position players and getting to the high minors, that's like, that's when it starts to feel really real. Whereas if you're still, you know, if there's a pitcher who needs to do X, Y, and Z, but he's still putting up kind of like decent numbers in double A or he's, you know, he's a prospect because he was a high draft pick. I feel like those types of, you know, pitchers in the bottom half of the top 10 
can be a little dicey, but like we're talking about, you know, hitters who have performed and hitters who are young and hitters who are improving and hitters who, you know, are on the cusp of the big leagues in a lot of cases. And I think that's what makes this one so impressive. I don't know how the Orioles end up doing it, but they end up, you know, with guys like Gunnar Henderson being like a couple at bat short every year. Ryan Mountcastle was, was short recently. Uh, um, I feel like there was a time when like Austin Hayes was on the list for like a year longer than he should have, but, but having those guys stay on the list and, and, you know, the Grayson Rodriguez DL hall and still being on, um, and then all the breakouts in the second half that kind of populated the second, you know, the second part of the list. It's just really, really impressive group. The the top three specifically on this list, uh, you know, Gunnar Henderson number one, Grayson Rodriguez number two, and Jackson Holiday number three. It seems like these three guys they're all clearly elite prospects. But to what extent do you think they separate themselves from the rest of this top ten? I think that there's like another level that they can go to um, that, that a lot of the guys can't, if, if we're being honest. And, and I don't think that, I don't think it's fair to, you know, even though I did um, by virtue of ordering this way, I don't think that it's necessarily fair to, to take that away from Colton Cowser or DL Hall. Um, I think there's a lot of impact potential there as well. Um, but I think that when you're talking about a Gunnar Henderson who did what he did to get to the big leagues at age 21, like that is, that is real and like players who do that turn out to be very, very good players. Um, with Rayson Rodriguez, you know, there's a chance that he's not on this list because he pitched, you know, a hundred innings in the big leagues with an ERA that started with a three. And if you do that at age 22, three, whatever he was going to be this year, like that's, that's impressive. And I don't think anybody saw anything this year that made them think he's not possible that he does that. Jackson holiday um, immediately became, you know, kind of the prototypical Orioles hitter. You know, he, he had fantastic plate discipline. Um, he's still impacting the ball. He's still getting stronger. And and I and I feel like it's, you know, if it was if Gunnar Henderson was in another organization, it would feel like a lazy comp. But but the fact that there's so much of that uh, that potential to do what Gunnar Henderson has done in Jackson Holiday, I think kind of separates him. So I think that's where that top three kind of I think that's where the top three really gets itself to a different level. It's the fact they can, you know, potentially go to a level and just be like elite, elite big leaguers. Yeah. And honing in on holiday, actually, we didn't get to see a ton from him last summer after he was drafted. He was one of the guys that was held back a little bit longer in, in Florida, but you know, clearly some promising signs hit a lot of doubles, didn't strike out a lot, walked a ton. How high do you think his ceiling can go is a year from now we're talking about him in the way we're talking about Gunner, maybe, last year I, I i honestly think so um and, and it was interesting to kind of go back and see as i was doing that series like what like this time last year what people were saying about gunner Henderson because he did get to double a um you know his time in his time in aberdeen wasn't fantastic but who's is at this point um and you kind of knowing that now it, it, it feels a little different but but i think there is that potential um i don't think i think it would be surprising to me right now as we sit here talking in december if he didn't at least start in Delmarva, um, he's still very young. Um, but he's the Orioles. They move players very, very quickly. And I think part of the reason, you know, that they might try to replicate that, you know, Gunnar Henderson track to, to, to make the lazy comparison again. But, like, he spent a month or so in Delmarva, and he got, like, you know, the 250, 300 at-bats that they want people to get in Aberdeen and then get him out of there. So if you start him in Aberdeen, you're moving him very quickly out of there if you're on the normal like 
development trajectory the Orioles have established. So I think that I think that is you know I think that's in play here. But I think that I think the short answer to your question is yes. I think that we could easily be having that conversation. He already has um, he already has the swing decision stuff like locked down. Um, I'm looking at it here. Um, some of the underlying data like he had a like a 10% like in zone miss rate which is crazy. You had a 13% chase rate uh, in Delmarva, which is also crazy. Um, you're basically talking about those, that level is like what Adley Rushman was doing in Norfolk before he got called up. So, uh, you know, this is like, this is, this is someone who already has that part down. And if, if you watch what the Orioles have done with hitters, um, the idea that he's going to start getting stronger and impacting the ball uh, and, and turning those doubles into home runs, like that's not unrealistic to think about and it might happen quickly. So barring anything unforeseen, this should be the last list that includes Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. Um, Both are kind of in the mix right now for the rotation on opening day, but it feels like they're in different places in their development. Um, How do you view them going into next season? Um, I I, I, I kind of wish that. I kind of wish that as Michael, you know, nobody's asked him about T.L. Hall to be fair um, recently, but I wish that as we're talking about, you know, how Grayson Rodriguez has an inside track to make the big league rotation and, and, you know, he's, <clears throat> he looks there like I would put T.L. Hall in the same category, honestly. Um, I think the Orioles liked what they saw, like towards the end of his time in the bullpen, like you need to be consistent to be a starter um, in the big leagues. I, everyone knows that. And I think everybody knows like that's his, knock if there is one but i think that they're in a place where like the, the expectation should be that they're in the big league rotation and they're making if not 30 i mean probably not 30 at this point given where they've been they're making like 20 22 starts next year and and pitching pretty well for the orioles i don't know what boxes are left for either of them to check i mean dl hall pitched well enough in norfolk to get called up like twice before he did um, you know, if you put him in Norfolk for a month, he's going to have, he'll probably have two bad starts and four really, really good starts. And you're in the same place you're in now. So like, let's get him <laughs> into the rotation. Let's get him the ball every five days. And same with Grayson Rodriguez. Like it's go time. These guys had the arms and the talents and the pitches to be in the big leagues coming out of the lockdown based on what we saw that, that, that spring of 2021, like now's the time to really, really do it. And I, I've learned my lesson not to say like this is the last time that anyone will ever be on a list because uh, because guys just keep not graduating when I think that but but it would be really really disappointing to have to write those reports again and not because I don't want to just because of what that would mean. Yeah, with Grayson, obviously, I, I feel like we were days, hours away from him being in the major league rotation before that injury, but he was able to get back on the mound to close out the year, get a couple starts, get back up to Norfolk. He's got this full off season now ahead of him where he's, he's healthy. But do you think that, do you foresee, and we get this question a lot, do you foresee the Orioles kind of still treating with kid gloves a little bit for much of this year in the major leagues? Or do you think the gloves are going to be like off for the most part? And like you said, it, it is this going to be go time for Grayson Rodriguez? You know, answering this, I don't have any particular inside out the plan is going to be, I mean, we can, you know, if I had how many innings I do here, um, how many innings he pitched this year? Yeah. 75. I mean, he's not going to, he's not going to throw 175 next year. We know that. Um, but I think that 
Hey. I think that you're at the point now that he's on the roster, now that he's, you know, in the where you can't really like baby him too badly. Um, I think that they know that there's risks to, do, to doing that as well. So I, I don't think he's going to be like full go, like, you know, let's go out there and throw 200 innings and like have a blast doing it. But I would be surprised if, if there wasn't, you know, whether it's skipping a start here or there or, or, you know, maybe his hamstring starts to hurt in June or July. Like, I think it's going to be that type of thing. Not like, okay, get to 80 innings in the big leagues and then go pitch in the bullpen. Like, I don't think, I don't think that would serve anybody. So I think they will probably try to keep him in the rotation as long as possible. And it will be difficult given the innings limit, but I don't think it'll be impossible. Moving now to number four on this list, Colton Kowser. Just unbelievable what he did in Double A Bowie. A lot of guys we can say that about, but Kowser especially. We really started seeing him turn things up a little bit at the end of the year in Triple A Norfolk after a little bit of a, a rocky start there. But when he returns to Triple A to start the year, what do you think? What areas of his game do you see needing the most improvement? Um, I think there was. I think there was more. Swing and miss in the Orioles, you know, we're anticipating over the course of the year. I think, you know, I wrote it multiple times. Other people have, and and he's been pretty clear about it. I think there was an adjustment period, A to pro ball, and just like, you know, the work that it takes to be a, have a baseball game every night at 7 o'clock and, and to be ready for that and some work to get himself into the, into the, you know, into alignment with what the Orioles want their hitters to do and, and vice versa, them to get into alignment with what he wanted to do. So I think that took a little bit of time. I think that when you're talking about the potential for him to to improve, I actually I think you know the, the he struck out probably more than anyone would would want to see this year. But I think that this might be a year where you see kind of what kind of hitter he he is going to be emerge. If if that makes sense, mm-hmm. he's someone who you know probably could have like a a four you know, for 2430 on base percentage and just be an on base machine and like set the table or like, let's not kid ourselves. Like those home runs and buoy, like weren't buoy home runs. He hit home runs to all fields at every stop. Like, and, and he hit a lot of them. And I think that, you know, he could be a guy who, if he wants to, you know, buy in and, and focus on what the Orioles want to focus on only swing at those pitches, he can drive for home runs. Like he could do that and he could be a legitimate, you know, he could be a legitimate power threat who plays, a very good big league center field. And you're talking about a different player entirely. I don't think either of those players is better than the other. I just think, I just think, you know, as he's developing, we're talking about somebody who has one full season under his belt, but we're talking about a player who isn't, is going to get to that fork in the road eventually. And like, it'd be great if he could be all like both things and like walk a ton and hit a ton of home runs. But I think there's going to be a a point coming up soon where we're going to kind of see what he is going to be best at, not what he can get better at or be good at. I think what he's going to be best at. And I think that's going to be really, that's going to be really fascinating to see. Yeah, that's a good point there. And another outfielder who I'm sure I'm guessing is the most controversial part of your, your top 10 who didn't make the list, Heston Kerstad, even though he came in off this MVP performance in the Arizona fall league. And it was a bit of a roller coaster season for him. Obviously he gets the late start due to injury destroys the ball in Delmarva, struggles a lot in Aberdeen, and including where he got pulled from a game for not or for slamming a bat down and not hustling out of the box, and then goes off in Arizona. What are some realistic expectations coming into next season 
for this guy who has missed so much time and still has some potential. Yeah, yeah, and truthful, there were some questions about it. There wasn't nearly the blowback I thought there was going to be for for having him outside, and and you know I'm glad for that. Uh, maybe people just can't find it, it, it or me as well as they would have been in the past years. So you know, I'll stay under the radar in that respect. It was it was difficult to pick him off, but but I think that once you get on the field, you know, you need to be evaluated for what what you're doing and what you're doing in relation to the people around you and, and, and the success that you could be having. And I, that I think that the Orioles um, and, and, and him probably truthfully realized the, the impact of the time off in, in a way that, you know, once you're happy, someone gets on the field and you're like, okay, now, now what's the next step. And I think that there's, I think that there's some work to do on his approach. Obviously he can still hit the ball hard. Um, but if, you know, kind of going back to the Colton Cowser thing, um, if you are not consistently swinging at pitches you could drive, you can't consistently drive the ball at, at the rate that you should be. Um, but if we're talking about realistic expectations, like none of, none of us would be surprised if he went to Bowie next year and hit, you know, a ton of home runs and just like went Bowie crazy and was in Norfolk by the all-star break. Like that would make complete sense because that's what happens in Bowie. And like, that's not to say that it wouldn't be real. It would just be, you know, especially if someone like, um, you know, I think left-handed hitters have a lot of issues at Aberdeen as it is. Um, I don't know if that's quantifiable, um, but that's, you know, anecdotally what you're hearing even more so than the righties. So realistic expectations are like, I'm sure he's going to be fine next year. And, and I anticipate him having a year, but, what it will take to do that is to be a little more locked in on the approach that he's developing at the plate and building a plan and based on, you know, the information that he's given and that stuff takes time. It's hard to do that. Um, and it's also hard if you are coming back from what he was coming back from, I assume, you know, I'm just speculating this, but I assume it's pretty hard to like not do what you were doing before. Anyways, he had no, he had no reason to think that that wasn't going to work because he didn't do it for two years. So you know, I have no idea what he was doing in the fall league. I'd be interested to find out if anything was different, better, the same, uh, you know, back to normal. But I think it's good for him and, and everyone involved that that he had the fall league campaign that he did. And if the Orioles are like are like us and reading about how other teams, scouts are, you know, saying 30 home run potential and the best player they saw, then, you know, I would maybe see if some of those teams have – controllable starting pitchers to trade for. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it just seems like on this more so with younger players, but it may apply with Kurstad because of the amount of time he missed. Um, do you have any sense of what the jump looks like from low A to high A last year in regard to the quality of pitching? I, I think that that level, I think that it was a, it was a big jump as it is. And when you talk about, you know, I think there's a difference in the teams that, um, like, you know, f who have affiliates in, in low A versus high A. I mean, that high A is like, you know, you're playing the Yankees affiliate. You're playing the Mets affiliate. It's, you know, they develop pitching pretty well. The Rays are in there. Um, and that's part of the reason, like, some of the 2022 draftees had problems. It's like they went from guys who were basically, like, either throwing their fastballs over the plate or missing entirely to, like, a bunch of, like, Tampa Bay automatrons who were just like, oh, Fastball up, slider away, and and you know you have to learn to you have to learn to combat that. That's how that's how the game works. That's why the Orioles push these people so aggressively. 
Um, but I think there was a big difference. I think there's, you know, I think generally there's been a degradation in quality in low A just by not having short season because teams just need to populate those rosters somehow. And they have players who sometimes aren't ready. But I, I, I think there's some of that to it. But, you know, he's probably not, you know, the guy that we saw in Delmarva, and he's probably not the guy we saw in Africa. I'm sure there's an in-between. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like, you know, earlier in the Arizona Folly campaign, we heard from, you know, one you know, national source to say he looked rusty, probably can't, he, he was struggling against just average pitching. <clears throat> but then you see, especially from like MLB Pipeline, I feel like it's really been pushing a lot of these anonymous scouts saying, like you mentioned, he's the best player out there. Um, and one quote, though, that I know Jim Callis was putting out there, a scout was talking about how yeah, the the strikeouts, he struck out a lot in Arizona. But it was more about him willing to be patient and waiting for that pitch to do damage on versus him, you know, not being able to, you know, handle spin or identify pitches or anything like that. What do you make of a quote like that? Like as a fan, how should we read into to a quote like that? So, so I think that I think that's interesting and like that's not a bad thing. Um, that's not a bad thing for sure to be to be waiting for those pitches. Um, I think that there's. I think that that's a good sign. And I think that there's also like, there's probably plans and approaches that you're probably going to get those pitches earlier in the counts is, is kind of what I'm trying to say. If that's what, you know, if, and if you're learning and if you're like, okay, I'm going to, it's a fall league, who cares? You know, if, if you're saying, I'm, I'm going to wait for them to throw me like, like try to throw me a backflip slider and I'm going to drop the barrel on it and I'm going to hit it 300 feet down the line. Like if that's what you're going to do, like, great. I have no idea if that's what he's doing. Um, and if he was striking out because he was waiting for that one pitch for, for an entire game and kept getting deep in counts and not getting it, like that's completely within the realm of possibility. So, but, but without seeing the games and without being there, without talking to those people, um, it's hard to know. I talked to somebody who was out there and, you know, I think he kind of just commented that, you know, everyone was hitting this year and the pitching in the Arizona fall league wasn't that great, but it doesn't diminish what he did. Um, you, you can only play against the player you're out there with. And you know, when it was low A, he was better, a lot better than facing. And the pitch he was facing in Aberdeen got him there. And all you want is to have the success that he had. Um, but, but, but I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, to be perfectly honest. I think that that's completely reasonable, but he did strike out a lot. So it, it, it will be the next step will be not to do that and not strike out as much. Going to another left-handed hitting outfielder, um, Kyle Stowers, and I guess, John, this is actually where we should uh, take a minute here to note where Baseball America differentiates from ourselves and a few other lists, including MLB Pipeline, where Kyle Stowers is no longer rookie eligible, but by Baseball America's definition, he is still prospect eligible because he did not meet the at-bats threshold last year in the major leagues, but met the day's service time. Um, so I guess it, looking at Stowers, it feels like he's not being talked about as much because he's in this area now where he's not a prospect in a lot of people's eyes anymore, but we also didn't see much of him in the major leagues last year. So aside from just at bats, I mean, we know that that's what he needs, but what do you think he's going to have to adjust to the major league level next year? Um, I, th I think what you saw with him and to, to a different extent, you know, Taron Vavra, like, I don't think that 
and it's a good it's a good you know on a basic level even if it's keeping players that you know you want to see in the lineup out of the lineup but like I don't think Brandon Hyde is going to play guys unless he's super comfortable with how they defend and Kyle Stowers you know I think everyone understands is a better defend than what he showed in the big league this was a team that was in the playoff race and like every game mattered so you couldn't have somebody who was figuring out how to play a major league outfield you know out there with with games on the line that meant something so, so I think that, you know, I think that I would be, I think that given what he was able to do from last year to this year in terms of, in terms of, you know, sustaining his power and striking out a little less, I think those kind of gains need to continue to be a, you know, a serviceable major league, you know, lineup piece, but also, he, you know, if he comes to camp and he's defending well um, and he's, you know, making Brandon Hyde confident that he can make those plays, that is that is all it's going to take because there was a stretch when eventually he did get into the lineup. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I feel like there was like a three week spree kind of played every day and had like an eight hundred OPS. And you look at that and you're like, okay, this is what everyone kind of expects. Um, it's the it's the kind of like approach and power that they are looking for. They want to have nine guys like that. They don't want to have nine guys that strike out like that, of course, but they want to have guys who walk. <coughs> Excuse me, guys guys who can you know turn on a pitch and hit a home run. That's what they're looking for. So as long as he can show that an anomaly defensively last year, I think he's going to get those at-bats that, that he needs. You know, that's the standard that Brandon Hyde kind of set this year, and I would assume it's going to continue going forward. Joey Ortiz, a on-the-verge favorite, uh, and someone who's becoming more and more of a favorite among Orioles fans. That second half, <clears throat> obviously, it's starting to feel a little less like lightning in a bottle and more like he was finally able to put everything together. We, we talked about before how coming into this past season, he really hadn't played that much professional baseball. And then he's coming off this major surgery. Uh, are Orioles fans still sleeping on him a little too much? Or are we like way too high on him? Where, where are we in this, uh, on this uh, scale here? I think people are like close to, close to the middle. Um, it, it happened. It happened, you know what I mean? Like he he moved where his hands were, and he flipped the switch, and he spent three three months with like a nine hundred OPS and just hitting the cover off the ball. That is something that happened. Um, so you can't say that it's like. You mean you could say that it's a fluke in three years if he if he has you know if he ends up with like one hundred and fifty big league plate appearances and like a five hundred OPS, like you could say that it's a fluke then, but you can't say that that wasn't real now. And, you know, even from like August to October, as I started thinking about this list to, you know, when I sent it in, I think it really makes a difference when something changes to make whatever is different performance wise happen. And, you know, he fits that mold to a T. He's always somebody who's been able to defend. Um, He's always somebody who has hit the ball hard and not swung and missed, he was hitting it on the ground. And like he started hitting the ball in the air, and when you hit the ball hard in the air, good things happen. Do they happen at a higher rate in Bowie than they might other places? Yeah, but he showed that he could do Norfolk as well. So, I mean, I'm not sure that he, but he, you know, I think the only guy who you don't shine, sign like a star quality shortstop because you have in your system is Gunnar Henderson. Like, that's it. That's the list. Um, that's the only guy you... You would 
use as a reason not to sign like a legitimate all-star shortstop of which there are many available if you want to take that excuse but you can also have two i mean i wouldn't put joey ortiz in like category of like oh you can't go out and sign a free agent because you have joey ortiz um but i think there's a major league future there that wasn't there in like june and that's really cool to see yeah, and another infielder. We've got plenty of those to talk about. Jordan Westberg. You know, everyone seems to be putting him in all their trade packages with uh, all these teams like the Marlins and the Brewers to get the Corbin Burns and Pablo Lopez's of the world. But I think an under-talked-about thing maybe is that Ramon Urias is a pretty similar or at least somewhat comparable player to Westberg and is a little bit further along. Do you think there's a chance that the Orioles will use Urias to uh, play a role in one of these trades, or do you think everyone's on the right track when it comes to Westberg? I, I, I would, I would try to trade, you know, Urias before I traded Jordan Westberg. I think it's like a natural thing to do. I think that, uh, I think that all the reasons why people are including Jordan Westberg in these, like make a lot of sense. Um, you know, he is a good player. He had a great season power-wise. He can play multiple positions. Shortstop. Um, you're talking about somebody, and we're saying as we go down the list of all these infielders, like Camden Yards is not going to be friendly to them. Um, and Jordan Westberg more than most. Um, when I broke it down a couple months ago, like a lot of left field home runs that probably be home runs. So I don't know if other teams know that. Um, I don't know if it matters to the Orioles, but like, excuse me, as, as we're having this conversation, like that's where my head keeps going. Like, would it be great to keep all these guys? I'm sure it would be. And there's a school of thought too, that like if the Orioles are improving players at the rate they are, like they can still improve the players that they have more and get more for them in trades down the line. So, so even though it seems like they're selling at a high valuation now, um, you know, wouldn't it be higher if Jordan Westberg is a year better? Like that's possible too. Uh, but I don't think this team is really in a position to to not make the kind of trade that it seems like everyone has them lined up to make for like a real big league like front end of the rotation pitcher. And if it means trading with you know somebody from the major league roster, somebody from this top ten list, like outside the three, maybe four, maybe five, like I think you do it. You have to do it. Um, so that's kind of that's not really answering. And I just. I, I haven't spent a lot of time with like the specific like who should they trade. Um, although I about like writing it many times, it would just take forever. <laughs> um, like I was like I've been thinking like oh should I rank these guys and it's like how where where do you stop? Where's the cutoff um, of like who to trade? But but the short like to to continue on answering the question, I think that I think that you have to look at everybody. Good discussion with John so far, and we'll get to more in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor, DraftKings. The wait is over. DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is officially live in Maryland. Now you can legally bet on all your favorite sports with DraftKings anytime and anywhere right here in Maryland. For a limited time, new customers who sign up with promo code on the Verge will receive $200 in free bets instantly. With Russell Wilson, their center for Denver, taking the Baltimore Ravens at 8.5-point favorites this weekend seems like a lock. Combine that with a 38-and-a-half game total, and watch your payout grow. DraftKings is the best features, including game, same game parlays, unlimited player props, and more with fast and easy payouts right at your fingertips. 
tips. DraftKings Sportsbook is where I go for all my sports betting needs. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code on the birds to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on anything. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code on the birds. So going back now to continue our discussion about infielders, uh, do you think the power surge we saw from Connor Norby last year is for real? And if so, how does that make his profile look in the major leagues? Well, I, I feel I, I feel like I you know I don't want to keep I don't want to feel like repeating myself. I think that you know to go back to the Jordan Ortiz thing, like something changed. Like his swing changed from the beginning of the season to the time he got to Bowie. Um, do the work he did with Zach Cole and Aberdeen, and then further with Brandon Becker there in Bowie. So, so you see, you know, you see changes, and you think, okay, this this is happening. This is legitimate. Uh, he has it for getting the barrel on the ball. I think that more so than the other right-handed hits, but certainly not to like a level that's like outstanding. He did a good job of hitting the ball the other way. I feel like anecdotally, like every time I went to Bowie, he was driving the ball to like center field, right field um, in the second half. And you just kind of realize like, Oh, this, this is, this is what this guy is doing right now. Um, did a really good job of adjusting to how he was, he could still turn on a ball inside if he needs to, but he, he developed the season went on of being able to, you know, be a little more, Maneuverable, I think, is the word that they they would use to, you know, be able to turn on those pitches inside, but also get down and and, and have the barrel adjustability to drive the ball the other way. So you're talking about somebody again who made who made improvements. I mean, are we talking about a 30 home run, you know, second baseman in the big leagues? That's that's challenging to see for for anybody because most of those guys are probably playing shortstop in Double A. Um, to be perfectly honest. Um, but there's there's value in that. There's value in that player. Um, I don't think there's any denying that. I, I'm interested to see. You know, he's been being in it for. He played in it this year with the shift uh, with the shift rules. Um, I'm actually interested, and I want to ask you guys um, to to kind of go completely off topic. It was very apparent going to minor league games, like what the pitch clock did for. Did for the games. It was amazing. I loved every second of it. Um, all I could think about every time I was at the game was how great it was. But I went. I was asking some scouts at the end of the year. I was like, "Did you guys notice that these like when you were at levels and the people couldn't shoot? Like, could you notice that? And like nobody could. Did you guys notice it? Like as you were watching, like the hit that would have been a shift. Like, they, like as nope. you, you guys are watching all this <laughs> exactly. Like so. So I'm fascinated to see what's like in, at the big leagues level because like in the big leagues because. Do you need a second shortstop at, at second base now? Because I don't know that Connor Norby would be able to do that. But do you need you know? Can you have somebody who you know is a bat for a second baseman in the mold of like a Dustin Pedroia or like a Brian Dozier? Like that he can do. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that works. But I think I think that there's I think that again there was meaningful improvement um, because there were changes and there were meaningful changes. So you have to kind of take that for what it is and say, okay, this player. A did improve, and B showed he could improve for the things he has to adjust going forward, and I think that's a big part of it too. Yeah, I was going to say with Norby too. I know the question we get a lot is, well, "What about the defense?" And I feel like there are kind of like scars of Jemai Jones in there somewhere as well. But like, 
in you're talking with people uh, when putting this list together it what have you gathered about the defense and what his maybe limitations are yeah i mean i mean he's 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 going to play second base you know there's no he's not moving anywhere to the other side of the diamond um i think the the, the impressions i got were that he was getting better like he improved um and that's what you want to see people from the inside the organization ask, ask me like what other people were saying too so i think they're pretty locked in on you know i think they're they're pretty understanding of what the uh you know what the discourse is and what other teams might be saying um, or, or or thinking, but I think that the, you know the vibe I got was that it was improved um, as it went on. I don't know that it's ever going to be you know, like I said, like it's not like you're going to be sticking a short there and having that kind of defense. It seemed like the trajectory that he was on the Orioles were were comfortable with. Um, another guy, young guy, talking about you know the Jackson Holidays and Gunnar Henderson, someone else who's following a similar path there. Is Kobe Mayo? Um, he had you know some injuries last year that set him back when he got to Double A Bowie, but it seemed like he's held his own offensively. How high do you think his ceiling is, and what adjustments is he going to have to make next year when he gets back to Bowie? Yeah, yeah. You know, truthfully, like as I was envisioning this list, he was not ten. Um, he was, you know, he was a lot. He was a couple of spots higher, and. I struggle a lot with like the that order of like not six through ten because Jordan Westberg was pretty seemed like he had kind of but like I struggled all seven through ten and I was basically told everyone I talked to and you know I was basically told by everyone like you're not like there's no wrong answer so he could you know we even the NBA of moving people a lot which is to say like which is a long way of saying like he he is like pace to do all the good things that like the Orioles are, have, are for him to do. It was just an unfortunate timing with his injury. Um, I think that, you know, my understanding is that like his time in Aberdeen is even better than it looked from the outside. Talk about the batted ball, you know, data and the quality of contact and all that type of stuff. And that was at age 20. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's still, he's turns 21. I feel like this, this next month. So, so yeah, I mean, he did all age twenty there. He got hurt in Bowie, um, but he also got, he also had to, you know, deal with some of the challenges of the level. And he is somebody who you can't really, you know, throw a fastball to, and you definitely don't want to throw a pitch on the inner third of the pit because you're going to hold up your glove and you're going to ask the umpire for a new ball. He. Really, really knack for turning on the baseball. He has a really, really powerful swing. And when you have that, you can leave yourself exposed to pitches on the outer half and uh, pitches that spin away from you. And as time went on in Bowie, teams saw that and they attacked it. <coughs> Excuse me. And that is the singular challenge for him. Um, you know, he's a big, athletic young man. Uh, to be able to control his body, like to keep the ball in the air, has been a check the Orioles have, you know, put on his plate since the mind, and he's done a really good job at that. I think the next step is to need to improve that body control so that he doesn't lose that power to turn on a ball, but also is to adjust the barrel and get to those pitches on the off and, and drive the ball that way. I easily, easily attainable. Uh, not easily. I mean, it's really hard to do anything. These guys, <laughs> but I, when I say easily, I mean I believe, um, I believe a in like the person and the player and 
the amount of work that he'll put into it. And I believe in the program and the systems in place to help do that. But in terms of off-season, you know, challenges and adjustments that are required, like, that's a big one. Um, we'll know right away. <laughs> we'll, we'll know very, very early next year, Bowie, how that is going because nobody would throw him pitches in his hot zones. Um, other teams have all this data too, and they know he could turn on balls with the best of them. But if he is, you know, getting pitched the way that he got pitched in Double A this year in April, and he starts driving the ball to center field and hitting the ball the other way, <clears throat> and and you're seeing those types of home runs, that's going to be a very clear indication that what Kobe Mayo did in this offseason and, and the work that he did paid off. And then you're talking about a player who, you know, I think the Orioles will be thinking very hard about, like, how quickly we get this guy to the big leagues because that will be a real player. Love it. To the big leagues, shout out. If uh, Eric's listening, to the big leagues as a right <laughs> fielder, right, the outfielder, Kobe Mayo, not, not third baseman. Um, but I think just zooming out a little bit and just looking at this organization as a whole and, and player development process as a whole, it feels like we've got some whiplash going on here from the Orioles being behind the curve in all these areas to now you, you got Eve Rosenbaum going on. I think it was the Fangraphs podcast that she was on Fangraphs audio podcast and saying, you know, we are a player development powerhouse now. And it was like shivers down your spine when you listen to that and we're seeing that play out and you talked about the beginning of this show with the list and those guys at the top of the list and how elite they are i mean what is standing out most to you when you're talking with players and coaches and and maybe even sources from like other teams um what's standing out most to you about how this organization is being able to turn things around so quickly it's interesting that like the pitching stuff happened first in like 2019 and and by and large work, um, you know, it's taken longer for that to show itself in terms of the top, top guys in the, when, when it comes to, you know, the actual major league roster. But, you know, two years ago, the people who were running this hitting department, like, were not here. <laughs> they, you know, in, in, in I guess, so, I guess three years ago now, right? Yeah, this time 2019, like, these people were not part of the organization there was no hitting department in the form that it is now some of them weren't even in professional baseball and the way that the Orioles kind of assembled this group and and have put together kind of a holistic program is is really striking when you when you kind of zoom out and look at it I mean with somebody like Dylan Beavers who who I badly wanted to have this list and we would have talked about um if, if it was the top 11 instead of top 10 but, you know, they had draft meetings where, with the hitting coaches in the hitting department where they're like, all right, here's what we got. Like, this is this is what looks like now. This is, the, this is the swing. This is the data. This is, you know, this ground. Like, we aren't just going to take this guy because we think you can fix him if you don't think you can fix it. And they have those meetings and they talk about it. And here he is, um, you know showing up at Delmarva a month after he was drafted and like meaningfully improving a lot of aspects of his swing. And, and by virtue of that as performance, like I talked to somebody in another organization's amateur scout department about him. And he was basically like, yeah, like I had a pretty high grade on him and I saw the Orioles took him and I, Oh, I was right. And like, think about like five years ago, <laughs> 10 years ago. 
if the Orioles take somebody like on the first day of the draft, like how many organizations, I guess when you're talking about like Dylan Bundy, but you know, how many organizations are like, Oh, the Orioles drafted this person. Like, so they must be good. And like, this person's going to get better because the Orioles drafted them. Like that is not, that is not um, something that people have said about the Orioles in, in our lifetimes. Um, probably. Um, I know that, they, something they said at some point, which is, you know, people used to email me about the Baltimore Sun, but that's what's going on right now. Um, and I think that's really cool to see. So you, I think it's, you know, the people involved, you know, the players involved, and the fact that, like, there's very little friction. There's not a lot going up the tubes in terms of, like, slowing what they want to do down. Like, they are speed ahead, and, like, everyone is pushing for the same goal. There's not a lot of, like, dissension i think they challenge each other but i don't think there's like obstacles and when there are no obstacles you can move quickly and that's kind of what's happening i want to jump in here about dylan beavers it felt like the adjustments for him came quickly last year and so did the success with that as he you know faces a higher level of competition next year what can we realistically expect from him so so i think that i think that that's like important to note that you know he is going to be facing a higher level of competition. I think the Orioles kind of saw um, when you, when you look at the 20, <coughs> excuse me, 2021 draft class and how they just all got to like spend a month in that, in Delmarva and like pummel a bunch of tired teenagers and like guys who hadn't gotten promoted yet. Like they had a good time, but like they got to, a lot of those players got to Aberdeen and they were really challenged and they realized this year, like, Hey, let's get you a little bit of success. Let's get you feeling good. And like, Let's get up to Aberdeen so you know what you're going to have to deal with next year and you can start potentially in a better place. I think that the expectation, considering some of the college players that the Orioles have brought in and developed over the last couple of years, is that Dylan Beavers is going to end in AAA. And he'll be on the cusp of the bigs because, you know, Stowers' first full season, he did that. Hadley Rutschman's first full season, he did that. Colton Kowser, Connor Norby. Um, you know, there's a record for those high, high college picks to do that. I think that it would, I mean, it wouldn't be, it would be great if he did. I don't think it would be a disappointment if he didn't because there are other things to work on um, as he's learning to hit with a wood bat and learning to do all these, you know, I suppose two will be many, many different things with his swing over the course of a season um, to get where he wants to be. I, I think that there's an expectation um, outside that there's just a set, like you spend your month, your two months in Aberdeen and then two and a half months in Bowie and then you're in Norfolk. I don't know that, I don't know that that is going to happen here, but I don't think that, that would mean anything bad um, about Dylan Beaver. He's a little bit of a different case than some of the players we're talking about, but there is a plan in place. And I think there's a lot of components to that plan and whether, you know, as I was doing this process, I was trying to find out, like, okay, is there, like, check marks? Like, are you doing one thing and then waiting to that get fixed and then doing another thing? And, like, I didn't really get a good answer. They're not going to tell me. But but, but it, I, I think that what became clear is that, like, just because he changed things and they went well in Delmarva does not mean, like, the changes are finished or have taken hold. I think there's going to be a lot of work to do, but, like, but it's going to it's going to happen. It just might not be, like I said, that he ends in Norfolk, and that wouldn't be a disappointment. 
to swing things back towards the majors a little bit as we wait for some transactions to, car- to start uh, rolling through here. Last year around this time, we were making making jokes about uh, what is the guy's name, Ramon Ramos, uh, or whoever was saying when the Orioles were going to sign Carlos Correa, you know, the big free agent signing. But this offseason seems like maybe there's a, a little bit less of a pipe dream aspect to that chance. What do you think about uh, all the smoke coming around the Orioles this offseason? I'm interested to I'm interested to find out. Like, I want it to be March and like know what this offseason looks like because, you know, it's not like the Orioles to be telegraphing anything that they do. You know, they've made all their trades pretty much in, you know, just like flashbang boom. We just traded Dylan Bundy. Like, you know, see you later, Alex Cobb. Like, sorry you were making dinner. Like just made a trade. Um, so, so I think those types of things, you know, usually kept pretty close to the vest. So, but when you're talking about, you know, trading for another team starting pitcher, like they'd have no interest. They have no reason to, to, you know, to keep that secret if they want to drive up price for somebody um, or create an expectation that's going to happen. Um, so I think that, I think that it would be tremendously disappointing if there's not, some kind of big acquisition. And I'm not saying that's like make a state, like, you know, show the fans, like sell tickets, butts and seats. Like, sure. That helps. But like this team showed that it was close last year. Like, a top player can get you close. So I'd be, I would be really disappointed if they don't make one. Um, but you know, so, but there is smoke towards like the bread pumping that, that we've seen in some places, you know, and like, that 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 the pipe dream might actually be pipe dreams and like that's that's disappointing. So I like I said, I really want it to be March and just like know what it looks like. Uh, so you can kind of wrap your head around it because it's really it feels like it's going to be a really important off season, but I have not been able to glean anything like about about what that will look like. And given what the last few off seasons have looked like, when you default to like nothing will happen, uh, that's it's it's not a fun place to be in. But it could be really fun, you know. That's that's the part of this that's work that's like worth paying attention to. They're so close. Like teams who are close make moves to get closer. Um, so 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 you have to expect they'll do that. All right. Let's see if I can seamlessly segue this back to the minor leagues. Um, with so many of the Orioles' top prospects right on the cusp of the major leagues and them presumably needing them to, you know, make their march to contention in 2023, there should be a lot of graduations. So be an interesting little little prediction if you could call your top five Orioles prospects this time next year compared to now. You're, You're muted. muted. We need to hear this. No, <laughs> you, you, you guys missed me like taking a deep breath and be like, "Yeah, let's do it." Um, <laughs> so I think Jackson Holiday will be number one. That's easy to think about. That's easy to see. Um, then I think Colton Cowser will be number two. I think he will be on Kyle Stowers' plan, and he will have. 400 something plate appearances in Norfolk and people like us will spend 
150 of those plate appearances wondering why he's still there. And then he will be called up at some point where he will maintain his rookie eligibility even if he plays every single day for the rest of the year. Um, so Holiday, Kowser, number two. I will say that... Um, man, this is... Then... Then we will say that Toby Mayo is number three. That sounds right um, because he will be a year older, and like we talked about, you know, we'll know pretty quickly whether it's whether what he and the Orioles want to happen will happen. And let's make a bet on it happening. Then number four will be whoever they take in the draft, um, because that seems like an appropriate place to put a first round pick, uh, especially in the system where guys will probably be graduating and or traded. And then number five will be um, Samuel Basayo, um, who I think nice. will get, I mean, when you look at the types of, you know, international talents who get, you know, top prospect recognition, it's the ones who are still, they're young when they get to full season and it's the ones who produce. Um, and I don't think that anything he's done in his career so far makes it seem like he won't produce when he gets to Del Marva. So when you're talking about an 18 year old catcher who could hit, I would say probably would, would project to hit like double digit home runs in Del Marva and like, maybe more like once you get into like 15, 18, 20, like that's, that's a high number. So I'm not saying that's what he will do, but I think publicly and and in the industry, he will, that will get him noticed in in a significant way. I don't think if he doesn't have that kind of year, he's going to be any less of a prospect because he will still have had, you know, a lot of time in Delmarva at age 18, I believe for most of the season. Uh, he just turned 18 this year, right? Yeah, like August, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to – I don't think there are a lot of bad prospects who spend their age 18 season in full season ball. Um, but but those who hold their own there and have that kind of success, like that is the type of thing that gets you a lot of recognition, and that's the type of thing that can jump someone up quickly. So – there we go. Yeah, I think no matter what, it's going to have a different complexion, look a lot different than this year's. And uh, we'll still have some fun to do on this podcast, it sounds like. Yeah, but, but like I said, I every year I'm like, oh, I feel like I used to do like, you know, and I still do it. Like everyone makes fun of it, like John Mioli writing about John Mioli's list. And like, I'll wear that. I don't care. But, you know, every year I'd be like, oh, this is going to be, this is the last year it's going to be like this. I feel like I did that in like 2019 um, because... I did like Mike Bauman and Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken and all those guys to graduate and like, all right, like clear them out, like get them off the bottom of the top 10. Like let's get some new guys in and then COVID and just a complete wash. But then you're like, Oh, now I'm really going to change. And it didn't really change that much. Um, and then yeah, 2021, I thought that like, you know, even in spring training, I feel like Michael, I said that like, they expected like five or six like graduations and like debuts graduations. Like we're talking semantics, but like when you think about that, 
in the context of last year's list, you're talking about like, okay, Lee Rich is going to graduate. Grayson Rodriguez is going to graduate. Theo Hall is going to graduate. You know, Kyle Stowers is going to graduate. Maybe Jordan Westberg is going to graduate. Like most of them are still on the list. So I hope, I hope, you know, I hope everyone, you know, has a healthy season um, for foremost, because that's what's important. But I also hope that like, get some of them off the list. Let's get it. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's still, there's still some talent to fill out the top 10 list behind them. Um, and, and it's, it was really interesting to think about what it could look like next year because you're leaving like a Dylan Devers and like a Judd Fabian and, uh, you know, Seth Johnson will be pitching, but like move guys off the list. Like Heston Kerstad, he could easily like have the, he could easily end in triple a with like 22 home runs next year. And then he's, needs to be in the mix. So Guy we had on the podcast last week, Daryl Hernandez. Daryl, that's right. I'm yeah, Don't forget about him away. again. Um, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I will not. I will never. Um, yeah, basically giving away the rest of the list. But, but there's there's interesting. There's there's a lot of interesting players, um, and maybe there will be another pitcher. Who knows? I don't, <laughs> Kate Povich. Major things have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I hope I hope that you're right. Let's let's leave. It. I hope that you're right, and that we're these are the last conversations on a list like this we're having about some of these guys. That is actually a perfect segue to our last question here, which is: We're a few months from the prospect handbook uh, being released, and the top thirty for the Orioles system that will be inside of it. Can you give us any hint of what the top thirty is going to look like? Yeah, um, I think that it is in some ways similar to last year's, um, which is to say that there's a handful of international guys that you would think would be on there who are on there. Um, and I think it's different from last year in that there's a lot more and different pitchers who, who are kind of populating the second half of the list. Like I said, you know, I'm not going to give away the whole list, but I'm sure – um, it's pretty easy to figure out who the next few who are left off the top 10 were and some of the guys who have been in recent Orioles top 10s who are not in there anymore and um, draft picks that you know certain people might like and guys who are left off lists um, in years past who are now not left off. So like, you can get to like, you can get the next few um, you know, relatively relatively simply, but I think that I think there are a lot of pitchers who you know who fell off the list through injury, which is unfortunate um, and maybe a little underperformance for those who are, who were healthy. And I think that, I think there are a lot of pitchers, you know, on, on the other side who a came into the organization to trade, who are, who are really promising and B who pitched well in the high minors and deserved to, and, and had really like standout performances. Like somebody I don't want to give away, like I'm not going to give away the whole list, but like, I had completely forgot about like Carlos Devera as I was putting like putting the list of people to ask about together, and then I remember I get somebody mentioned him and I was like, oh yeah, he had like one of the most ridiculous months you'll ever see, and like if he had stayed healthy, he would have finished in Double A and like probably been if he was on the tra- if he stayed on the trajectory he started on, like he would have been in the top four or five like pitchers in the organization like even higher than trade guys um you know he did it but like that's somebody who 
had a really good season on the mound and like is on the list. And it's not because he's just like a statistical performer. Like there are real things happening that made it so. So I think that's going to be the difference is like the pitchers who are on there and what what their futures are because even the pitchers who made it last year, there are some who who you could feel good about their prospects at that time last year, but there are some who were just kind of like performers and just kind of there. I don't feel like there's anything like that this year on the pink side, and I think that's that's a step in the right direction. John, we appreciate uh, you joining us tonight. And before you go, let our listeners know what you have coming up on your newsletter and what they can get on the free level versus the paid for level over at Substack. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to Diego for the winter meetings. I'll be here uh, in Baltimore like everybody else. So I'm thinking it might actually turn into like an actual newsletter type thing next week is like kind of like breaking down the news uh, that's coming out of there. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I've been a little slacking on the on the free the free uh, this month. It's just been a weird timing of getting stories done. But But, you know, I try to do a good sampling of what you're going to get if you pay. Um, if you're just a free subscriber, there's one of those a week, usually, hopefully, more consistently going forward, and then two or three paid stories every month. Um, I'm thinking there's going to be a little more reported content um, because I miss doing that, and I think it's a lot of fun, and just putting this list together um, kind of sucked up a lot of my autumn, um, but hopefully get back to some more reported stories. I have a couple ideas floating around about some interesting people behind the organization might try to check in with a couple of players um, who we've talked about as to how their work towards these goals we spoke about have has been going and yeah just really you know we're getting close to a year with it um it's grown better and more than i think i could have imagined i have you guys to thank for a lot of that um so thank you for the for the opportunity to talk about it um and I hope everyone who subscribes to me um, is also subscribed to you guys in, in your uh, your paid tier. And that's really it. So thank you, guys. Well, thank you, John, for coming on. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time with us tonight. Yeah, and we'll do it again whenever the top 30 comes out or sooner. Who knows? i got to climb up the leaderboard. <laughs> yep. You'll be uh, tied for first then. So, Bob, Nick, and I will be back next week to talk a little bit of Rule 5 draft and whatever may be going on at the winter meetings. In the meantime, you can check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. While you're there, be sure to hop on the message board and join in discussion with fellow readers as well as contributors to the site. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge, where we're continuing to have Rule 5 preview coverage there. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Thank you to John Mioli for coming on tonight's show. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden, and you've been listening to On the Verge. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.